Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, you may have noticed a uh, recurring theme in the songs uh, that we sung this morning and even what I just prayed. Um, You might be wondering, why are we having basically Easter in July? There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, in one sense, every Sunday is an Easter celebration. There's there's a real sense in which every Sunday, every Lord's Day, when the, the church of Jesus gathers, it is a weekly celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because his life is our hope. His life is our life. If Jesus died for sins and then stayed dead, we don't get saved. We don't have any hope or any future or any standing with God. But the fact that he was raised from the dead and defeated death on our behalf and demonstrated that God accepted and received the sacrifice Jesus made for us, that is where we find our confidence and our hope. And so for 2,000 years or so, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, uh, is when Christians have gathered to proclaim and remember Jesus is alive. Jesus has risen from the dead. So every Sunday can be and ought to be a celebration of the risen Jesus. But the, the other reason that we're kind of focusing on that this morning is that in our passage in John's Gospel, from John chapter 16, this is really where uh, Jesus' instructions to his disciples uh, gets to. Uh, the, 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 the teaching that Jesus gives his disciples here today really hinges on the reality of his resurrection from the dead. If you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn now to John chapter 16 as we continue looking at Jesus' sort of final sermon to his disciples. This began uh, in, at the beginning of chapter 13. Remember that John's gospel is kind of divided into two big chunks. Chapters 1 through 12 is sometimes called the book of signs. That's where we see Jesus performing these acts of power that demonstrate his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah of Israel. And there were seven of those that we saw. And then chapters 13 through 21 are sometimes called the book of glory because it's all about the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Although the first three chapters of that, actually four chapters of that, are just Jesus talking. <laughs> so he gives this long speech uh, to, to his disciples kind of explaining what's about to happen. He washes their feet as kind of a symbolic act of the cleansing that he is going to provide through his death on the cross. Uh, And then he just begins warning the disciples about what's going to happen. I'm going to leave you. Um, One of you is going to betray me. Your leader is going to deny that he knows me. And the world is going to hate you, right? So, wow, okay, this this is a rosy picture. So Jesus has been warning his disciples, trying to prepare them for what's coming. Woven into that, the warning uh, of the difficulty that lies ahead and of the aloneness that they're bound to feel, he has given them the promise that he would send to them the helper, the comforter, being the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would come after Jesus' departure and live inside them. 
We kind of looked at, at those promises specifically last week that the Holy Spirit would live inside believers and the Holy Spirit would empower them for uh, witness in the world and convict the world of sin. Uh, and so now we come in this latter part to, to Jesus, again, is just going to acknowledge the sorrow of his disciples, the distress that they're feeling. So I'm going to read for you verses 16 through 24. Verses 16 through 24, you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So he begins with this statement that utterly confuses the disciples. A little while, and you won't see me. Then again, a little while, and you will see me. And they go, what is he talking about? And so you have like three verses of them just repeating that to each other. Wait, what does he mean? A little while you'll see me, and then a little while again, and you will see me. I'm not sure what he means by a little while. And Jesus goes, oh, is this what you're asking? What do you mean by a little while? So you're like, wow, that's a lot of that little phrase right there. But the point is the disciples don't get it. They're mixed up. What is he talking about? What Jesus means by this little while where they won't see him is the period of time between his death and his resurrection, which, if you're looking at a calendar, is a pretty short period of time, right? Three days tops, he's in the grave. So it's not a long period of time. However, the depth of sorrow and loss and confusion and distress and despair that the disciples would be feeling will make this three days feel like a very, very long time. Jesus is aware of the reality of their sorrow, and so he's going to enter into what they're feeling. He's aware of their burdens, and he takes it seriously. He doesn't just go, it's only three days, just get past it. You're going to be sorrowful. You're going to lament, right? So when he says, a little while you won't see me, I think he says, I'm about to go and be killed. So, and this is, this is the night of his arrest and betrayal, right? So the, and the next morning, the events that end in the cross will take place, okay? So a little while is really a little while. Within hours, he'll be gone. 
And then a little, again, a little while you will see me means just three days later, I will rise and you'll see me again. So I think that's what he's talking about here. Because you can read that and think, well, maybe he means like the period between his, like he rises from the dead and goes to heaven and then he comes back later, and that's the little while he's talking about, although it's really kind of a long little while, right? But I think he's talking here about his death and his resurrection. That is what immediately the disciples are about to face, is Jesus going away, and they will be alone and sad and confused. And so I think it's good for us to consider the real, not just sadness, but despair that the disciples are probably feeling in this moment. I mean, we've just kind of walked through all the things that Jesus has told them. He's going away. Their leader is going to fail and deny that he even knows Jesus. In fact, he tells them in just a few minutes that you're all going to scatter and leave me alone um, when my hour of need comes. One of you is going to hand me over to the enemy. Like, what? How is this even possible? It doesn't make any sense. By the way, once I'm gone, the world's going to hate you and it's going to persecute you and put you to death thinking it's doing God's will, (laughs) God's service. So, This is not going to be easy, but in this window of time, when Jesus goes away, that is when he dies, the disciples, even though Jesus is telling them, and he's told them in many ways, sometimes kind of like in a little bit mysterious kind of language or kind of like in a parable, but sometimes more plainly, even though he's told them, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to come back, they don't really get it. So when they see Jesus die, what they're going to experience is everything that their lives have been built around for the last at least three years while they've been following Jesus in his earthly ministry, from what they can tell, it's over. It's done. What is my life supposed to be about now? I thought that Jesus and his kingdom was where my whole life and our nation and the whole universe really was headed, was Jesus' kingdom. And now he's on a cross. Now he's on the ground. Now he's in a tomb. They're truly sorrowful. And I think when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, that little uh, formula, that truly, truly, I say to you, as Jesus kind of says to them throughout this gospel, that's like, this is for real. I, this, I listen to this. This is important. Right? So I think he's acknowledging your sorrow is real. He recognizes it's going to be legit. Even though I could go, it's just three days, dude, and I've already told you that it's going to get better, that I'm going to come back. He doesn't do that. He doesn't brush it aside. He says, you will weep and lament. The sense of loss will be palpable. Andrew Peterson has a song called God Rested about the time that Jesus was in the grave. And I think he expresses their distress very well. He says, so they took his body down. The man who said he was the resurrection and the life was lifeless on the ground now. The sky was red as blood along the blade of night. So they laid their hopes away. They buried all their dreams about the kingdom he proclaimed. And they sealed them in the grave as a holy silence fell on all Jerusalem. When they buried Jesus, in a very real sense, they were burying all of their hope, all of their belief, what they had thought that their lives were 
invested in and we're all about this kingdom jesus is going to inaugurate initiate this kingdom and he's going to rule once again and now he's in the grave this is real and tragic loss perhaps making their sorrow all the worse jesus tells them will be that the world will rejoice you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice talk about adding insult to injury talk about kicking a guy while he's down right you will weep you will be in despair your hopes are going to be dashed and all the people around you are going to be throwing a party boom we got him right the devil is going to be celebrating and so the world here when he says the world will rejoice the world is this system this empty system of values and belief and that sort of life investment that the devil himself controls so sometimes the devil is called like the, the ruler of the world or the, the prince of this world. And that's what he means. It doesn't mean that, that Satan actually has this like authoritative kingship over people. But he is in charge of the system that leads people away from God. All right? and, so, and sometimes in the name of religion. Sometimes in the name of God. So people, just like Jesus told them, people will even kill you thinking they're serving God. Right? So the devil and the world are going to be throwing a party. In fact, it's going to look like the devil is winning. Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is lifeless on the ground. Jesus is buried in a tomb. It looks like the devil is won. It looks like the death of Jesus marks the failure of the kingdom of God and the triumph of the kingdom of darkness. That's what it looks like. So the, sor- the, the disciples are feeling this sorrow and this loss and this despair and this confusion. Total death of hope. And in the middle of that, they're seeing, wow, the world is winning. The devil had his way. God lost. That's <laughs> kind of what it looks like here. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I wonder if you've ever felt like all of your hope has been dashed. The thing that you had your heart set on that you thought was going to carry you all the way to the end, it failed. It was over. What now? And I love the way that Jesus knows what his disciples not just feel in the moment, but they're going to feel. And he warns them, this is how you're going to feel. He knows your heart too. Just like he knows the, the weakness, the confusion the despair that his disciples are going to feel he knows our burdens he knows our weakness he knows our pain and when our hopes seem dashed and he cares i think there's good in just knowing he sees us and he cares and he enters in with us well the real good news and sort of the the whole point of this paragraph if you will this part of jesus's speech is that sorrow is not the end of the story their despair is not the final chapter look at verse 20 he says truly truly i say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy Oh, the grace of such a promise. Just to know the sorrow doesn't last forever. 
The darkness doesn't win. The confusion, the despair, the loss, the death of hope, it's not permanent. It's not final. Your sorrow will turn to joy. Joy is coming. There will be a day that brings hope and life and rejoicing out of the ashes of our sorrow and our misery and our brokenness. He gives this incredible analogy in verse 21 of a woman giving birth. Any women in here given birth? I know a few of you have. I, uh, I've watched my wife survive survive five miserable, difficult, increasingly difficult pregnancies that are like months long, right? It seems to get worse and worse. Oh my goodness. Um, traumatizing pregnancies. I've been in the room when all five of my babies entered the world. And I can safely say, probably on behalf of most men, I'm really glad I'm not a woman. Um, I think, no, for real, I think God was very wise to make women the ones who have to carry and deliver babies because if he had made Adam the one that carried and delivered babies, I think humanity is dead in two generations. So I think we just go, nope, not doing that. And it's over, right? Um, not going to do that. So seriously, women are amazing. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. All of my respect to you. Um, but I, I say to Lindsay all the time, like, I think the only reason that we have five babies is, be, is because God just wipes your memory of all of the miseries of the 10 months worth. It's 10, by the way, not nine. 10 months worth of, of trauma and pain and puking and all of that and then culminating in, like, the delivery of a baby, which, like, doesn't really even make scientific sense, but it still happens, right? Um, God just must totally wipe your memory clear of that because, lo and behold, a couple years later, oh, it'd be so nice to have another baby. I'm like, are you kidding? Do you remember? No, it's, I really even like being pregnant. No, you don't. It's horrible. Right? All right. So God mercifully, mercifully just wipes away the memory of the agony. Why? Because Jesus says, when the, the baby has been delivered, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. It's true. We look at our baby and we go, it was worth it, you know? The, the, the agony and the sleeplessness and all of the things that come with it, it was worth it because look at this. Look at what God did. Look at what God brought into the world out of that pain and sorrow, to use Jesus' word, which is a little bit of an understatement. She has sorrow when her hour has come. Yeah. Yes, she does. But when the baby comes, she forgets it because it was worth it. And I think that's what Jesus means here. The joy of the disciples at the resurrection of Jesus, when he comes back to them, will be like that. The pain and despair of that weekend where Jesus was in the grave would be forgotten and their hearts would be filled with joy. Look what God did. Jesus didn't just stay with us. Jesus was gone, and then he came back to life. He walked out of the grave. Death has been destroyed. This kingdom is bigger than what we even thought. This victory is even deeper and farther reaching than what we had imagined, and their joy would return. Their hearts would be filled 
with joy. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And this joy, no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. The joy afforded the disciples by Jesus' resurrection would be permanent. No one will take your joy from you. Why is this joy permanent? Because Jesus ain't going anywhere again. He's died once, he ain't going to die again. He defeated death, he's king forever. If your joy is Jesus, guess what? It's solid. It stays. It's going to last. That's where your joy needs to be. No one will take your joy from you. Not, not the Pharisees and the chief priests, right, who are going to be out to get you imprison you, torture you, kill you, not Roman emperors, right? We know what this is going to look like for them, at least for a couple of generations. Christians ending up in gladiator arenas being eaten by lions for sport. This is what's going to happen. Doesn't take your joy. Why? Because it's a joy that overcame the grave. The worst that the world had, the worst that the devil could muster up, he flung at Jesus and he defeated it. Nothing can stop the joy that would fill the hearts of the disciples at their reunion with Jesus upon his resurrection. That's Easter is all about joy. It's about the defeat of our greatest enemy and the joy and life that comes from that. Do you know the unshakable joy of a heart settled on Jesus? Don't mishear me. I'm not saying the ease or the painlessness, but the joy of the heart settled on Jesus. For those who love Jesus Christ, the promise of immovable joy is profoundly true and real. May we grow in the love of Jesus such that the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, 8 and 9 could be said of us. Here's what Peter says there. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If our joy is in Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the source of our hope and our confidence and our life and our peace and our future, then that joy can't go away. That doesn't mean you'll be happy all the time. I don't think Jesus necessarily wants, even cares that we're happy all the time. Hope that doesn't sound like heresy to you. He's deeply concerned about your joy. He's deeply concerned about your joy. Well, he finishes this uh, part of his instructions with the joyful promise of fruitful prayer. Look at verse 23 and 24. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. I think by that he means all your questions will be answered. Right? right now you're confused. You don't know what's going on. But in that day, when I come back, it's all going to make sense. You won't ask me these questions. Wait, what do you mean? Oh, this is what it means. Then he says, Truly, truly, there we go again. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen, this is important. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, 
he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, when he says, until now, you have not asked anything in my name, we've got to think back to how he's taught his disciples to pray. Like back in Matthew 6, when they said, Lord, teach us to pray, what he gave them is what we sometimes call the Lord's Prayer, or the, the model prayer, if you will. And that's where he said, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? You know the prayer. Starts with our Father. So we address God directly as our Father without the need to pray with reference to Jesus and his authority. That's how he instructed his disciples in that day. But when Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended to the Father again, Jesus' name would become their calling card, if you will. It would secure for his disciples the right to whatever they ask. When he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. Well, again, we've observed in recent weeks, because Jesus has been kind of dotting this speech with instructions about prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, that the Father may be glorified, you know, I will give it to you. We've observed that Jesus, uh, as he has introduced this bold promise of fruitful prayer, this is not, you know, carte blanche permission to just make demands on God or to request whatever selfish or foolish things we might uh, desire. The prayer that is offered in Jesus' name approaches God on the credentials and the rights of Jesus himself, right? I come to you in Jesus. I can come to you because he represents me, because in his life and death and resurrection, he secured for me this right to come to you boldly. It considers the glory of Jesus and that which will bring honor to his name. We pray in Jesus' name, we're considering what will honor him, what will glorify God. And it prioritizes those interventions and acts of grace that would strengthen the Christian's witness and work for Jesus' kingdom. He told them that back in chapter 15, that you would bear much fruit. That's the point of it. So we pray in Jesus' name for God to be glorified and for us to bear fruit. And so that little phrase is not just something we stick on the end of a prayer and go, that means that everything I just asked for gets approved without discretion. What it means is it shapes how we pray. It shapes what we ask for. It shapes the confidence with which we approach God. We approach him on Jesus' credentials with his glory in view, with a desire that we would be more effective and fruitful in our ministry for him and our witness for him in the world. And if that's the kind of prayer that we're praying, if that's the heartbeat of our prayer as we come before God, Jesus says, without hesitation, whatever you ask, it's yours. I'll give it to you. Ask and you will receive. So we need to be sure that our approach to God in prayer is not starting with me. What do I want? What do I hope for? What are my felt needs? Okay, God, meet me there. Give me what I want. Meet my felt needs, right? Fulfill all my hopes. That's not the starting point for prayer. The starting point for prayer is in Jesus' name, even though we put it at the end. It's really where we should start. Jesus, what will glorify you? Jesus, what will help me to represent you in the world? And if that's what we're asking for, if that's the heart that we bring into our prayer 
to God, we can be confident that he will answer. But check this out. So here, Jesus introduces a new motivation for prayer. He's already talked about that the, that the Son would be glorified. He's talked about that you would bear much fruit. He gives a new motivation, a new criterion, if you will, for what would mark faithful praying. Joy. That your joy may be full. Does that surprise you? That one of the chief motivators in our prayer life should be joy? Our joy. Jesus wants us to be joyful. He shows his heart here concerning the joy of his disciples. He never says, and thus I will always be careful not to say, that Jesus always wants you happy, like I said a few minutes ago. But he is deeply concerned that you have joy. And there's a difference, a big difference. You can be in the middle of terrible, hard, painful circumstances, not feel too happy, but nevertheless have joy a deep-rooted settledness, confidence in the person of Jesus, his presence, his power, his strength in the middle of it. Because he said, just like he said to his disciples, your joy can't be taken away from you. Your happiness, up and down. Here today, gone tomorrow. If we lived our life based on just trying to pursue happiness, even in the American dream, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that pursuit of happiness is a pretty winding road, isn't it? Some days it looks pretty good. Other days it's like, whoa, where is this leading me? Happiness is not even in view right now. But our eyes on the wrong ball. We're not pursuing happiness. We're pursuing joy. He wants us to have joy. You might remember back in chapter 15 when Jesus made this analogy of, 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 of abiding in him like a, a, a grape vine like the branch lives in the vine it's connected to the vine it takes all its nutrients from the vine takes its life from that vine he says let let my words abide in you and abide in my love and all this and and the abiding has an upshot a result the purpose he said these things in verse 11 of chapter 15 these things i have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Very same phrase that he concludes verse 24 with. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is interested in the fullness of our joy. And the only way our joy is full is if it's rooted in the person of Jesus. If we're hoping in something else, joy is not a guarantee. Joy is not going to last. It is absolutely right, good, and Jesus-honoring to pray that God would increase your joy. He is deeply concerned with your joy and that your joy be rooted in Him. That's what He wants. If you find your heart lusting after lesser things, whether forbidden things or find things that are just wrongly elevated. Pray that God would deepen your joy in Jesus Christ. That he would increase your heart's capacity to see and savor Jesus and his glories. 
So that as the old hymn says, which some of you might remember, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's where joy happens. That's where this lasting, unshakable joy that nobody can take away comes from. It comes from, my eyes are on Jesus. And that's not going away. He already won the battle. He already won the war. And so when my heart is on Him, when my eyes are on Him, the joy that He brings is a lasting joy. And nothing can take it away, even in the darkest and hardest and worst and most painful of the circumstances that you'll ever face in your life. You can have joy if and only if your eyes are on Jesus and Him alone. And so He promises His disciples, you will see Me again and you will rejoice and your joy will be full. No one will take my joy from you. You know, I think there's a sense in which uh, the period of time that we're living in is kind of um, similar to what the disciples would experience in that few-day period of time where Jesus was in the grave before he came back to life. So on a, in a small scale, in a shorter time, they were without Jesus, they felt alone, they were confused, things were hard, and then Jesus returned to them by coming back to life, and just as he says here, your joy would, would, be, uh, would be full. And no one would take it away from you, right? In the same way, our lives now take place between when Jesus rose and ascended to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father and that period of time, that, that event that has not yet happened when Jesus returns. He promises that he is going to come back and take us to be with himself. So all of our lives really are in this in-between time. If you think about that weekend when the disciples were without Jesus before he had come back to life. Our lives are sort of like an analogy to that in an extended way. Jesus is alive, but we don't see him. And we bump up against the burdens and the hardships and the sorrows of life. And so in a way, we live in this long weekend of Jesus' separation from us. But there is a hope. There is a future where Jesus will return and we will see him. The Bible tells us we will be changed. We will be like him for we shall see him as he is. That is the hope of the Christian. If you know Jesus, if you've placed your faith in him and you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, there is a day coming when Jesus is going to actually, literally, physically return. It's not just fairy tale mythology stuff. He's going to come back. And those who are in him will be united to him forever. And joy and glory beyond any comparison, anything that we can even imagine will be there for us. So I think it's fitting that we have the opportunity today to take the Lord's Supper together. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's kind of giving instructions on the Lord's Supper, he says, uh, that, it, that in this way you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is a forward-looking faith in the taking of the supper. 
when we eat the bread that represents the body of Jesus that was broken, and we drink the cup that pictures his blood that was shed for sinners, that we could be forgiven. When we do that, there's this visible, public symbol of the life that we have now because of his life and death and resurrection and the hope that we have that he's going to come back and we're going to be with him forever and our joy is going to be unshakable. No one will take it away.